Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, often in this podcast, we're talking about diseases and how we track them through the system. But in this episode, we're talking about how you track us through the system via our medical records and even the My Health record. Medical records are pretty much what we use for everyone these days. We learn about them, their history, what they've had, what they what they have, how it's been treated, how it's been managed in the past and where we're at the moment. And for me, it, I use this as an opportunity to go back and say, well, you know, what medical records do we have? Uh, and I thought, oh, you know, there's going to be a wealth of knowledge I'll be able to find out, you know, go and dig into, you know, ancient e- Egyptian culture and sort of look at their records. They're fantastic record keepers. And I was surprised about how scant information I found. We'll, we'll go through a few of some of the examples, okay. uh, uh, you know, but I was quite surprised. You know, the, if we go all the way back, you, the, you know, ancient Mesopotamia is the place where we find the first medical record as such. And this is something that's written in cuneiform, which is sort of a word sign language type, you know, pictographs. Oh, the, uh, the, the way doctors write today. <laughs> Could be argued that the uh, you know it's Latin cuneus is means wedge. So they would actually have a stylus, which was where they would press it into the soft clay. Uh, this was developed from the Sumerians in Mesopotamia uh, around three thousand five hundred BCE. Uh, and what they found uh, looking at this was uh, this tablet, the oldest tablet that we know, uh, is about two thousand four hundred years old BCE, mm-hmm. uh, and meaning it's about 4,000 years old. We have what it's written is actually 15 prescriptions for pharmacists, sort of, you know, a list. Uh, And that language or that communication device was used pretty much up until about 100 years BCE uh, when it was sort of swapped over for more the alphabet type uh, communication device. And this uh, tablet itself was, was found in the great library of uh, Ashurbanipal, who was a, an Assyrian king who was, who was around 600 BCE. Uh, he, was, he enjoyed his books and texts, um, and he collected, is probably the nice way to say it. effectively he stole whole ancient artifacts around that area, and he collected them all and put it into this, you know, the ancient world, put it into this library. Uh, they ended up finding about 660 medical sort of tablets, found in this library uh, another 420 were found in a in a you know what they said an ancient medical practitioners library around there and these were records they were records of sort of medical knowledge not necessarily of people but what they knew at the time uh, there was a, a large sort of in in history there was a large you know, Great Fire of Nineveh, which is where this was located in 612 BCE. Now, parchments didn't survive, but these clay tablets did survive. Mm. Uh, and what they ended up finding with everything in this in this library was about 20,000 to 30,000 cuneiform tablets. 
It was found by an English explorer, Austin Layard, uh, in 1850. Now, he was a guy who was working in the London law offices in 1839, and I'm not sure if he had a midlife crisis or something, but you know, he decided to go on a journey into Antolia and, uh, and Syria. And at the time, he happened to be in, in Mosul, which is uh, Iraq these days, uh, and he had a desire to unearth all the great biblical cities. And what he ended up finding was he ended up discovering Nineveh, and he found this library of Ashurbanipal. Mm. And so that gives us a little bit of an insight. It doesn't tell us too much. There were records of information. But again, like Romans and the Greeks, this was more information about communicating medical knowledge uh, as opposed to writing it down or, or anything we knew about anyone. So we went to, you know, ancient Egyptian records, and we saw that there was uh, King Senebke in 1600 BCE. Uh, now, he ended up dying of 18 axe wounds. He was clearly ambushed of something. Uh, mm. We know this now because of forensic information that we have on him, not from records, because they didn't keep it about here's how he died, which was interesting to me. I was surprised. I thought they might have a list. But at the same point in time, it wasn't important to them what they died for because, again, they were going into the afterlife. I was surprised. And then one of the things that I did find, though, was I thought I'd find a list of causes of death. But there was one statue that did catch my eye. And this was a statue of the pharaoh Akhenaten. Uh, and he is... Like, most of the statues are idolized. They are masculine. They are what you would expect to see, the you know, the athletic, you know, type. But the, the pharaoh of Akhenaten, his statue is actually quite striking. He's a male, but it shows feminine features. He had wide hips. The statue looks like has breasts. He had these long, thin arms and this protruding chin, long facial features, and a bit of a drooping belly. And this is a striking departure from normal Egyptian statues. Now, Akhenaten was, in fact, considered a, uh, a rebel uh, of times, and lots of his statues were destroyed after he had died because he was considered a heretic. Mm. Uh, but the interesting thing is he's, he wanted to be portrayed this way because it was his statue. And I can't work out why, but a picture tells a thousand words. And if we look at this, it's hard not to look at it. Experts and archaeologists have looked at it. Does this, does this person, did this person have a condition, what we call Marfan syndrome, uh -huh. where they have, it's a gene defect, a connective tissue gene defect. Uh, it's autosomal dominant. So, you know, you have a 50-50 chance of getting it from your parent if they have it. Uh, but, uh, you know, a quarter of the cases are spontaneous and just occur. And these patients have you know, are tall and slender. They have long, thin arms and fingers, and they have distinctive facial facial features. Now, we know about this because they also have predispositions to conditions like heart murmurs or, you know, aortic dissection, uh, you know, or they're sight-affected. But it puts it into an interesting perspective, you know, did, you know, Arknaten have this condition? Again, no records other than that, but it's just, a, it's just an aside. And so... When we look at other things, we know Alexander the Great's death. So, you know, when he did a bout of heavy drinking, then had fever for, for 10 days, as we discussed in episode 12. But the cause was unknown, but his symptomatology was recorded. We got to see that and able to extrapolate it. 
we have the plague in 1300s there is a there is a description of the symptoms there in men and women alike at the beginning of the malady certain swellings either on the groin or under the armpits waxed to the bigness of a common apple others to the size of an egg some more some less and these the vulgar named plague boils so that's an apt description now that's not from a medical professional that's from an Italian poet. Oh, wow. And so you sit there and just go, and, and, and when I was looking at it, I was going, well, why am I getting this information when I'm trying to find symptoms or medical records? And it's because writing was expensive. People weren't literate. To learn to write was a, a whole challenge in itself to be able to read. And you sit there and just go, records were expensive to be kept. And so just keeping it on the ordinary person would have been amazing. Why, why would you do that? And also, the doctor is the fountain of all knowledge. And if they knew you, they knew your history. Therefore, to write it down would seem to be defunct. And that's when we find ourselves in, you know, the 1500s. We've got King Henry VIII. And so he was a man who enjoyed his physical sports, particularly jousting. Uh, and he's described as charming and athletic, uh, but mind you, if you know if his propensity for cutting off heads, I'd probably describe him as you know <laughs> athletic and charming as well. Uh, he's he was large and obese, and he was in a jousting event at Greenwich, uh, which changed the course of history. He was in a duel, and he was hit and unseated from his horse. He fell. And a fully armoured horse fell on him. It crushed his legs. He was unconscious for about two hours. And so there are some sources that say he failed to put his visor down during the joust and he had a head injury and somehow it clipped the top of his head. I haven't been able to confirm it. I'm not sure if it happened or not. But even that event of someone falling down and being unconscious for two hours is a critical event. And recovered. And not only that, they mentioned that after he had recovered, his mood had changed. He was prone to fits of rage, migraines, depression, insomnia, and and memory loss. And so his legs appeared to have healed, but then he started getting ulcers that started persisting for the rest of his life. They were described as you know bilateral, so both legs, purulent, so getting a pus coming from them, weeping, abscesses formed, and it had this offensive smell, which they treated with red-hot pokers to try and get oh. it to... Which wouldn't have improved his mood to begin with anyway, no. so... A little bit of karma, though. <laughs> well, it's this is what their knowledge was at the time. And so that, to me, is a medical record of his condition. And... Not only that, we then find ourselves in the writings of Robert Ferguson, who was the obstetrician to Queen Victoria in 1840. Now, he was present at all nine of Queen Victoria's children's births. And after Queen Victoria gave birth to her first child, he declared that a princess had been ushered into the world. But Dr. Ferguson recorded the first words that the Queen said at this announcement. I fear it will create great disappointment. And so that's a that's a it's just a snapshot in time about her impression of giving birth. Mm. Uh, but we also find out other things through Dr. Ferguson's writings. He believed that 
her own childhood had persistent negative effects on her mental and emotional health. She had been reared amidst fears and quarrels, so that from her very infancy, her mind had ever been on the stretch and had never known what was true repose. And then one time he wrote, he was summoned to the palace for his advice. The Queen has heard that you have paid much attention to mental disease and is afraid she is about to lose her mind. She sees visions and hears sounds and is much troubled as to what will become of her when she is dead. She thinks of worms eating her and is weeping and wretched. Victoria and Albert eventually were both reassured by Dr. Ferguson, who stated that the most likely cause of this related uh, symptoms was due to a digestive organ disorder. So, uh, (laughs) again, unusual, but, Mm. you know, those were the times. So... Here's the thing. This reads and sounds like a medical record, but it's actually from Robert Ferguson's diary. And he kept it for prosperity because she was such an important person to document her experiences and her births through that. And he actually states in it that, you know, this was not to report on gossip of idle tattlers and then goes on to gossip (laughs) about people in the court. So it's a bit of an unusual one, but... I reflected on this and I've just tried to work out why is the medical record so scant? And the reason is because, again, this was, first of all, it was about recording knowledge. So that was important to pass on. And it also would be for wise men, people who could read. So clearly people who were educated. Uh, and, and doctors, as we said, doctors were the fountain of all knowledge. So to have communication about a person's condition they would have already known what it was that they were coming and seeing them for. So again, to create these documents, they needed parchments or scribes. They needed to store it. This is all really, really expensive. Uh, you know, this is before the printing press and even after the printing press. But again, the printing press is for duplication of documents. And so who are we creating the documents for? Well, who did we create it for? Royalty, important people people that were had uh, were able to affect world events. It wasn't for the ordinary person. And so when we look at it, it's not until literacy rates started to go up, which is in the 1920s, about population started getting over 70% literacy rates, that health also at that time was becoming multifaceted. And so it was not just one doctor treating a person. It was many doctors. It was a hospital system. You had a whole bunch of people such as specialists, allied health. Now we've got pathology, radiology, mental health, uh, pharmacists, all feeding into one document. And so now documentation is cheap. Anyone can produce it. And it's to give us the best case to manage a patient. So never before have we had the capabilities of being able to record everything about a patient's health. And so we now use it to provide the best care we can for the patient in front of us. So healthcare records is that you are special, Steve. Well, that's I hope I am because you're a doctor and just like Queen Victoria's physician, I'm hoping you write about me in your diary. Do you? Always. All right. Well, talking of doctors too, Dr. Chris Moy is going to join us in just a moment from the AMA. Dr. 
to Ruby with you in a moment. Difficult. Elaine, you shouldn't be reading that. Now tell me about this uh, rash of yours. Um, well, it's, it's, you know, I noticed that someone wrote in my chart that I was difficult in January of 92. And I have to tell you, I remember that appointment exactly. You see, this nurse had asked me to put a gown on, but it was a mole on my shoulder. And actually, I'd specifically worn a tank top so that I wouldn't have to put a gown on. Well, that was a long time ago. How about if I just uh, erase it? <laughs> now, about that rash. But it was in pen. <laughs> you fake erase. This doesn't look too serious. You should be fine. What are you writing? Doctor? Dr. Chris Moy is joining us now, not only South Australian President of the AMA and Vice President nationally, he's an Adelaide GP. He's got a long-standing involvement in the areas of aged care, end-of-life decision-making, palliative care, and, for the purposes of today's interview, digital health at both state and national levels. And it was while pursuing the imperative of advanced care planning documents to be available alongside patient electronic health records that led to his commitment to the development of the My Health Record. He's a current member of the My Health Record Expansion Program Steering Group and the Privacy and Security Advisory Committee of the Australian Digital Health Agency. And among other roles, he's the current chair of the Ethics and Medico-Legal Committee of the Australian Medical Association. Chris, thank you for joining us. Good day, Steve. There's about 23 million records at the moment as part of the My Health Record. But as of last year, there was a report that about half of them remained empty. Given that it's you know, about a decade on now since the launch of My Health Record, what's your current assessment of its progress? I think the thing about it is is that people um, think that it has been around for 10 years or so, but really the start date was when opt-out came in. <laughs> if you really look at it, a lot of the issues with opt-out, and there was a lot of the debates and the, the absolutely reasonable debates about privacy and development of good legislation to support the My Health Record, um, the, the real start that was there because if, if to some degree something like the my health record which is a which is essentially a secure dropbox for all the information that is already available about you that it's sent between doctors and pharmacists and hospitals but is normally not available when you actually need it uh, by somebody else um essentially it's, the, the thing about it is is that um it was it was always going to be something where it was going to be have enough mass before it really could take off um, you know, it's a bit like a, 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 a snowball effect. You need to get enough mass and you need to get enough people on board. So really, if you look at it, the start date was actually when we went to opt out, which is not so long ago. Uh, prior to that, it was very difficult to get people to get involved because there wasn't enough people enrolling. And that was the whole point of opt out. So to some degree, the start point was opt out. And now, to be frank, behind the scenes, the the the, the thought was was that we were never going to go bang and 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 uh, it was always going to be, in fact, supposed to be a slow build up because mm. um, for many of these things, you you do need to keep on building the connections, the people building trust in it, getting used to it, and then after a while, you do hit this critical mass where people start going, hey, it's a critical part of my world, and that's both from the medical or health point of view, where they they suddenly go, the light goes on and goes, gee, this. This is really useful. I found something that would have taken me, you know, 
hours to find out, may not have been able to find out about somebody that's helped me treating this individual in front of me, or that the patient's gone, gee, I've actually got some information about myself which I can carry and I have greater empowerment about my own health. Um, so those those things are building up and it's a bit like banking, online banking. When I first yes. got used to it, I mean, God, oh, there was no play way I was going to get involved in that. But now, oh gosh, uh, I'd, I, I'm, uh, it's all, I'm all in because there's no way I'd be a survivor without it. I suppose the thing about opt-out, if we think about how we operate in this world where we've got privacy agreements with every app we download that we ignore and just say yes. If you think of NASA sending probes into deep space, they use the momentum and the gravity to sort of slingshot their way forward. And many of us are lazy, so it's hard to break the habit to proactively sign in. But if unless our feathers are ruffled, then I suppose we're harnessing that that uh, that latency in all of us to just go with the flow, and it ends up being a net positive, at least as I read it as a citizen. Well, well, that's exactly right. And the irony is is that I think uh, a lot of the discussions so far and the negativity about it has been about the privacy aspect. Um, And and, and people have gone on about the the privacy, which, look, privacy is a right, which is absolute. But but it's not so much about individual, you know, that it's a zero-sum game where people make blanket rules about privacy for everybody else because I think it's a matter of being able to control your own privacy, which the My Health Record allows. It's, it's, there's nothing quite like it where you can actually set your own standards, you can actually opt out, you can actually put uh, uh, pin numbers on there to control your whole file or individual documents or remove documents. I mean, there's nothing quite like it. Um, but the thing is, is that um, what you said about there was very interesting about this um you know, this uh, expectation and, you know, like uh, that, you know, that you, they wouldn't do anything until you build it up. The only is, is that a lot of people, if you really ask them, they, they have been wondering why we haven't been able, the hospital hasn't been able to get information that was in my my computer about their allergies and their uh, medications. And they think it's been insane that we haven't actually had this. In fact, they, they assume that that was the case. Um, so we can look at it one way, which is yeah. that, you know, well, well, you know, everything should be in a box and it should be private and nobody should ever be able to get it. But that's a lot of people applying their own values onto it. I look at it the other way and say a lot of people have expected us to be able to do this. And the My Health Record is always a a bridge to try and break down the fact that we are in silos in Mm. terms of information. And that has actually been created a lot of health risks, which is the other right to actually control and minimise your health risk. Yes, because... For me, the decision was based on imagining being on the the gurney, uh, being wheeled into an ambulance and then into a hospital. I don't want any seconds to be lost in getting information that could be used to save me, even though, you know, that means other people are sharing this information. It's That was the sum end sum game for me is uh, I thought of that pointy end when it really matters and all the high arguments really go out the window. You just need to break the glass in case of emergency. Yeah, I mean, my background, as you probably read, was that really in advanced care directives, which is really about, if you think about what advanced care directive is, it's actually writing down what your wishes are or uh, indicating who will make decisions for you when you can no longer make decisions. And for me, the thing was, was that you can have all these documents that are absolutely useless unless they can be available at the point of care when the emergency doctor's looking at you and working out whether, for, for example, if you, your decision is that you 
don't want resuscitation because that's not something that fits with your uh, view of life because you're near end of life or and, and that that and, and my world is in aged care where I know a lot of patients have decided they don't want to go down that path but that when they enter the health system, it happens to them basically through the absence of that information available. It's a complete travesty that that happens. And that actually drove me. That was the first line. But the thing that really got to me later was I understood, having worked in emergency departments, that how, frankly, how we were doing it with no information in such a dangerous way. Yeah. Um, and we were providing care with no knowledge about whether somebody had an allergy to something or whether we they had a contraindication because of condition. And I was... The thing that really sewed it up for me was I was looking after my sister-in-law who was in hospital. She had actually had major sepsis and unfortunately developed uh, such major sepsis she actually lost her legs. She had a near-death experience. She was really at a point we were brought in at the time where they they had run out of anti, run out of medications to keep her blood, blood pressure was 60 or nothing. And they brought her around and she's okay now. She's actually okay now she's got children and she's looking after them and she's fine but i remember sitting with the uh, the emergency doctor and saying hey you know when she came in because i knew they threw every antibiotic at her and i said um did you you know what information did you know about allergies because i knew about a penicillin allergy and they said never and if you think about the insanity of this world where I knew that the difference between life and death was she got lucky with the antibiotics that she was given, oh. um, that really it's this combination of, for me, the information about, you know, and it's really about autonomy and self-determination in your advanced care directive and about your wishes about what you want done, but also who will make decisions for you on your behalf, but also put together with your medical information, which is the, the critical components mm. to, for somebody else to be able to make that call for you when you can't make it. Um, the, all those things really, I, that just kept me going because I've always gone back to that. I, I don't think about anything else. I, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of waffle about it. There's a lot of silliness about it, which is sometimes, under, you know, and, and some of it is, is understandable debates, but I've, I've never gone away from that those things continue to drive me. Hmm. Uh, just one quick side note here, uh, as more of us are getting familiar with scanning into places because of COVID and having our little app around us, um, wouldn't it be great if there was an offshoot where you could download just your core uh, uh, meal-based allergies just to flash at a, a waiter in a restaurant in some simple colour-coded chart so they knew exactly what uh, to react to in serving you without any other personal information but just this simple little card. As a restaurateur, I'd be feeling like that makes me feel better uh, and you know, a bit like those people in emergency in the hospital just dishing out antibiotics without realising what allergies might be placed. Well, then, then I'd be saying then, 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 you, then you'd probably have to take it through some legislation about privacy. So yes, there, of course. There's some huge debate about that. Um, and look, I, I'm just joshing with you there, but what I'm saying, what I'd say to you this, and I'll bring this up, is, and I'll emphasise what I said before about this issue about it's it, what normally happens is when people understand that the My Health Record is no more than just a, a secure Dropbox that's available to people that are registered medical practitioners or health practitioners, yeah. and and they and there is a audit and they, you can you can check who's opened it and seen a document and right. and the, the patient can control it. Um, the the thing about it is is that um, there's always this debate about. Um, the privacy side of things, you see, and 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 
And I was only joking about the fact that we have to be careful about understanding the rights of privacy and the privacy is a right for people to determine what to do with it and to you know determine what risks they'll take with their privacy. Now, with my health record, it's got bank level security. There's never been a breach of it. And, you know, like they'll talk about breaches, but there's never been somebody who's hacked into it, okay? And, and that's really the main thing. Mm. Um, the, the, but, the, but the thing is, is that the my health record, the critical thing is, is it's not about the zero-sum game where it's a scorched earth approach to privacy, where it's kind of like, um, people imposing their will about privacy. You know, a lot of privacy advocates, I think, go completely overboard where they're imposing their their personal values on privacy. And in fact, sometimes doctors are doing that on their patients. In fact, they won't use the my health record because, in fact, they'll they and, and I ask them to question their own thing. Are you applying your values about privacy onto your patient, who is my ninety year old who doesn't really care about their privacy? They just want safety in information and better health. Uh, and they want the hospital to know this information. But if I make a decision about them not being on my health record, am I actually undermining their health, in fact, by making judgments and, um, um, how could I put it, um, making taking away the autonomy of an individual for their own privacy by making my own judgment because I'm imposing my own values onto that person, which is something which is a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And so the my health record, for, for that person that comes in, and I... So for all the people that worry about privacy, I have the other side of things where you do have that 80-year-old man who says, you know, okay, I was in hospital the other day and they gave me that medication which you said not to give me because they didn't believe me and and they couldn't get your information. So this information has the ability to be an advocate then, to be that sense of security for those people at the front line. And I just wonder, the analogy that I'm picturing here is that back in the day when we were with one GP for life, uh, that GP would carry that information in their head and that doesn't happen these days. So this is like an outsourcing of that into some central repository so we get some of the benefits of the doctor already knowing which is held in this My Health Record. Is, is that a fair analogy? Yeah, um, and, and, it, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a tool. It's no more than an yeah. extra tool yeah. to try and improve the access to critical information about a patient which can improve their health care and potentially actually improve their self-determination, such as the advanced care directives being available. Um, and I think that's an important point that it's that. Um, uh, it's, it's, and, and, and it just has the very same documents that are already out there. It's just that at the moment they're stuck in my stupid computer at home and can't be accessed some other time. And, and, and for, for somebody who really wants it, has health care as their priority, um, that in fact you're actually undermining their health by yeah. not making it available. Now, I think you've eloquently uh, argued for the benefits of this universal record system, but to be fair, what would be the weaknesses that you see at the moment in the system? Oh, look, I think there are uh, known uh, issues with it, which are really at the moment, and the thing that I'm very big on is, in fact, making it as functional as possible and, and for the person who is the health provider, um, doctor. Um, for example, if it, if it isn't slick, it's, it's going to add time and, and weight and, and, and problems for me. And, and that, that is a legitimate argument. And some of that is actually because of the legislation to some degree, and maybe that's something you need to look at at the moment. But I think some of it's just because, as most things, um, uh, software uh, changes over time. And also because in Australia, you have the My Health Record um, 
which is infrastructure, which is created and, and, and controlled by the government. But you have on the other side of things, a lot of private vendors who have to tailor their, 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 their link into the My Health Record. And the way they make it look can vary a lot through the systems. And sometimes it's really great and sometimes it's not as great. And sometimes it, and it, it does need to keep on evolving over time. And that's what I'd say. It's just like online banking when we first got it. It was very clunky, but gosh, it's very, very slick now. Um, almost uh, scarily slick with the not just improving in functions and making it um, more efficient and easier to look at the information, but also added extras as they come along. So the things that are that need to happen over time are um, increased connections with other silos because there's still this issue about that's actually one of the things. So a big area that's not the the the, the weakest link in my area is actually spe- private specialist medicine at the moment. They they have generally not been supported to to join the my health record as much as the general practice, the hospitals, the pharmacies, for example. Mm-hmm. Aged care is terrible, but that's mainly because the imperatives and, and the um, the software has not supported, that, like their accreditation requirements or their uh, funding has not uh, pushed them towards linking into national digital infrastructure, and that's something that is, is, is being pushed at the moment. Um, because really it's very reliant on the fact that you have more people connected, not yeah. only to provide information, but also to be able to use that information because it's of most use if you have more people putting in information and also getting it out. So all those things are issues. So it's um, just workflow uh, across a lot of systems. It's adding functions and it's uh, this issue about increasing connections. But a lot of that is building over time. You can see that. And one of the things you said about why isn't more people using it now? It was always viewed that it was going to build momentum and the greatest benefits are the people that have been on it for a long time. So as time goes on, the records are going to build up. They're not going to go away, right? right? A record from a long time ago for, say, a younger person is going to build up and that allergy is going to stay there or some information about a test they had a long time. And the benefit, for example, if they've had, a, say, a scan um, a long time ago, say 10 years ago, which would normally be stuck in a stuck in some some server which you'd never be able to get access to and I can look at and then I see a lump on a scan of the same area five years later and I'm going how do I find this result and I'm I'm worried this is a cancer but I can look on the My Health Record and look at this previous scan report or see the actual scan itself I can see gee that that was there five years it's the same size suddenly amazingly I'm not so scared I might not I might uh, make a better decision about health. Better still, I might not put them through another test, like another bit of test, which will actually put them through more radiation. Is there any new challenge that faces the GP, for example, in using this uh, with their records and record keeping that doesn't exist if they're not partaking in this system? So one of the challenges is 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 that at the moment, the way that my health record is built, it's built up on a, um, a format which is essentially a, a, a secure document format, which is like a PDF. It's you can't change the document. Mm-hmm. Now the reason we do have done that is because we want to uh, mimic what goes on now. You don't want a document that you can't trust because you want to know that that was a copy of the original document. Does that make sense? Yep, an audit trail. Uh, at the moment it is. Mm-hmm. Our biggest problem in Australia at the moment is because of the failure to um, to um, uh, accept across the board uh, standardised, they call it nomenclature, 
yep. uh, essentially uh, language um, and in, what we call interoperability. I mean, in simple terms, systems don't talk to each other very in a standard way, and we don't have standard and and um, computer um, nomenclature or naming of everything. So. Um, there is a lot of work in there. There's things like SNOMED and there's things like uh, Australian um, um, medicines terminology. These are things, these are efforts to try and standardise the, the words. But I'll give you an example for mm-hmm. um, amoxicillin has to be the same thing as ampicillin, has to be the same thing as um, amoxil, which is the brand name, or it has to be, they have to be the name because um, we have to get to the point where all computer systems use this because at that point, we can do this thing called um, atomizing of the data so that we can, because that information is can be held secure, we know that that bit of information is the same, number one, mm-hmm. but also that, that when we open up a document, I can cross-match my document with that document. And what I would love to be able to do at the moment, which you can't do at the moment because we don't have this, is I'd like to look at my medication list versus the medication list that comes back to hospital and automatically go, these are the three that don't match. And I'd like to be able to just suck them in and actually improve my time and they it automatically becomes part of my medication list. At the moment, because it's a secure document, I can't do that. And because we don't have this... Um, uh, agreement about this yet, mm-hmm. although we are heading towards that, although it's been a long, long uh, time that we've been saying that. And, and and that's because, ironically, the My Health Record was built partly to overcome the fact that we have such siloed thinking, not only in terms of siloing of health system, but siloing of purchasing of um, um, hardware and software, essentially, where people have bought equipment but doesn't talk to each other. And and, and where we need to get to is the point where the, the, there is actually um, uh, a, a standardisation of uh, uh, this software and hardware so they can talk to each other and we have standardisation of these naming systems so that we can do this amazing things where things can be uh, automatically uh, sucked up and compared and then with absolute security and then I can just combine the information and that would save me lots of time. We're not there yet. In drawing this to a close, in thinking from the perspective of, of GPs and others who are inputting information, what is your word of thought or encouragement going forward? Because it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, there's there's an extra layer of workload in thinking through the taxonomy and these protocols for future-proofing what's being entered so that it's going to work towards the common good. Uh, it means there's going to be some extra pain, but it's down the track where we're going to reap the rewards, and it could be patient by patient that those rewards are reaped, as well as uh, not leaving people in different front lines open to... Uh, legal exposure by having accurate information to make their decisions upon. Okay. The first thing I'd say about the the information about the, and most of this is actually concerned about the um, the accuracy of the information of the data that's on the My Health record. Um, and, and look, uh, I, I'll give you the best example. I had once where this um, uh, doctor, I had a patient who had actually seen from interstate, in fact, and actually used their My Health Record to improve their care, and, and he was an advocate. He ended up at another hospital, and some, frankly, upstart 
doctor, this young doctor in the emergency department said, I refused you my hope because I don't trust the information from the GP, which I, the information I put up there. Now, apart from being, in fact, um, professionally um, uh, rude, I think the thing that concerned me about that was the fact that uh, there's actually studies that show that the uh, the information that comes out of the hospital or the medication list has about 12 to 15% error rate itself. So that doctor who was complaining and worried about the information that I provide was actually, um, is actually making a 12 to 15% error on the information they're providing me anyway. The thing is, is that the information on the My Health Record is the very same information that you're getting as a discharge letter or as in any other form. And we all as health um, professionals need to look at the information with the same level of care and to you know be you know reassure ourselves and to um, confirm that information is correct with the patient still be judicious yes and it makes no difference whether that discharge summary came to me by letter by fax by email or through the my health record and that's the first thing the second thing is is that that the nature of these things are they're always harder at the start mm-hmm. Um, and when things are a bit more clunky. And certainly at the moment, we're in the phase where the information is going in and we're providing information. But the point at which we make it a little bit less clunky and you start to one day, we have more, we build up this momentum because it's actually a quid pro quo. We provide the information, but if other people keep on providing that information, that information will build up. And then oh, we'll be able to look up that CAT scan and suddenly be able to go, gee, that lump was there five years ago because somebody else bothered to put it on there. The benefits suddenly go from, gee, net cost and time to net benefit, not just in terms of time, because it's taking less time to find that information, but benefit for the patient. And what I would say is uh, most of these things, they do need to get to that point for a lot of people and the light may go on one day. And hopefully then the, the benefits and the concerns about um, w- extra work and the concerns about the, the, the trust issue will flip around and they'll actually go the other way. In fact, they, they'll look at it half full rather than half empty, which is, I think, to some degree, how people have looked at the My Health Record. And at that point, they'll say it's just what the doctor ordered. Well, they'll actually go the other way and start complaining that uh, why wasn't this uh, made clear to me? And, you know, that's what normally happens. But look, I've had to develop a bit of a thick hide over this over a long period of time. And because, uh, look, I'm not trying to to put myself on a platform. But what I'd say is that I have been very clear about my thinking about this because I haven't lost sight of why I did this. And, And it's because... It's, it, it just does not make sense in the 21st century you can turn up at a hospital and they have no information about what your wishes are and who they want to make decisions with you haven't got decision-making capacity and they don't have basic information about your medical history to make the call. It is insane. And that my health record is part of the solution. It's not the only solution. It's part of the solution to try and prove that. Dr. Chris Moy, I'm sure this conversation is not over yet, but thank you for taking these extra few steps with us. It's a pleasure. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. 
Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.